Greetings from the Greens. Good morning this Sunday morning. Uh, I'm here at home at the greenhouse in the dining room around the table. And I hope you'll see how abundantly clear the significance of the table is as you tune in and hear the sermon today and consider the implications to your life. The table, I think you'll agree with me, can be such a place for great moments, for gatherings, for meals. A table can represent memories. I think of all the places that I've lived from boyhood to present day. I can think of the townhomes, the condos, the houses. There's a lot that I don't remember, of course, but I do remember all the places and I remember the table. I don't remember the meals that I ate, but I remember the conversations and the actual tables that I sat around. I was born in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I don't know how many of you know that, but only lived there for less than a year, so I have no memories there. But as a boy, after that, we moved to Pampa, Texas. Any of you guys ever heard of Pampa, Texas? It's right outside of Amarillo. Some of you George Strait fans will know that song, Amarillo by Morning. But I was a little boy for several years. We lived in Pampa, Texas. And we lived, get this, in a little pink house. Now, I was embarrassed by the little pink house. I envisioned my friends making fun of me. They, I don't think they ever did, but I thought of it as the Pepto-Bismol house. And this was years before singer-songwriter John Cougar Mellencamp would come out with the song, Ain't That America, where he sings about little pink houses for you and me. I remember years later when I heard that song, I looked back and became proud that I lived in a pink house in Pampa, Texas. All the places that I've lived from boyhood to now, Pampa, Texas, Starkville, Mississippi, Tallahassee, Coral Gables, Rancho Bernardo, some time in Europe. I remember the tables and shared experience. The, the table that I'm sitting around now, uh, we bought from a friend. Some of you know in our church, David and Jocelyn Deal. David does really good stuff and he built this table. It was custom built for us eight years ago when we moved to Fondren. And around this table, we've had countless family meals, multiple small group gatherings. We've had staff and elders over, never the deacon, sorry guys, but we've had staff and elders, we've had invited guests over and uninvited guests, and wouldn't you believe it, sometimes the gift of hospitality kicks in with Susan, and we have people around this table, even uninvited guests, sharing an experience. What happens around a table? There are memories, there are meals. Think about it, animals eat food, but human beings share meals. Because it's more than food, it's love, it's connection, it's belonging, its relationship. A table with a meal is a powerful magnet to draw people. It's also a place where you can notice if there's tension or conflict or division. There's nothing quite like a table. A table that reminds us that there's some monotony to it as well. Think about it. I don't know if it's like this at your house. I'm going to venture a guess and say that it is, but at our house, everybody always sits in the same seat. Is, it, is that true for you? Now think about that. Nobody voted on it. We never, we never got together and had a formal meeting and made out a seating chart or anything like that. But everybody says, this is our table and this is my chair. Instead of making fun of that, I was thinking about it a little more profoundly this week, that there's something in the human soul that cries out that says, this is my seat. I want to have a place at the table. And that's how God has made us. Diedrich Bonhoeffer uh, had a great commentary on Ecclesiastes 9.17 in his book, Life Together. I want you to take a look at what this passage says in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 9.17 says, Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine 
with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. In this book, Life Together, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he amplifies this and talks about how important it is for us to eat with gladness, to reject uh, sorrow, bread with sorrow, and to rejoice in the gifts, even in the midst of difficulty. Lest you think that Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a hopeless optimist, uh, history tells us that he was running an underground seminary during Hitler's Nazi Germany. In fact, he was hiding at the time from the very people who would go on to kill him. He says then what could be so true for us in our time, right now today, no matter what's happening in the outside world, we can find gladness around the table. We can be with the ones we love. We can invite other people to be around this table and share joy and gladness with them. Our church in back in 2014, right before we moved to Dueling, where we were at Dueling Hall, it was right before we moved to, our, to 3327 Old Canton Road to our permanent home. We did a three-week sermon series called Come to the Table. I preached the first two and the third sermon, me and my whole family were out in California marrying Susan's youngest sister. And we had an associate pastor who that final week of come to the table, he sat at a table on the stage with a few people, Fondren Church folks who shared their story, some with stories of comeback, of overcoming, of pain. It was a phenomenal, it was a phenomenal morning. Someone texted us later that day and said, this was the best church service I've ever been to. And I thought that person really knows how to make the pastor feel special. I'm gone, but it was the best church service they've ever been to. You know, the early church was known for singing of songs, praying of prayers, giving of offerings, listening to sermons, but they were known very notably for sharing of meals. It was central to who they were. You look at the Old Testament, God gifts people with this gift of hospitality that says, welcome in the sojourner, the stranger, those who don't have a home, those who don't have a seat at the table. In the Old Testament, we see God's people learning to express His heart to a hurting world. When guests arrived, they shared a meal. When a birthright was passed from one generation to another, they shared a meal. After temple sacrifices, guess what? They shared a meal. And when there was a national celebration to, to rejoice in their release from slavery and captivity in Egypt, guess what? They shared a festival, a feast, a meal. We see in Jesus him going to the home of Martha and Mary, to the house of Simon Peter, inviting himself over to the house in Jericho of Zacchaeus the tax collector. Significant things happened in people's lives when they shared a meal with Jesus. I think the most significant meal was the night that Jesus shared with some of his closest followers the night before he was arrested and eventually crucified and put to death. The followers, the disciples gathered with Jesus and they thought they were there to celebrate the typical Passover celebration. They thought they were there to celebrate what God once did. But Jesus was there to show them that they weren't gonna celebrate what God had once done. They were there to celebrate what God was gonna do. And he spoke of the bread. He spoke of the wine. He spoke of the, his body and his bloodshed. And he said words we've said often that we try to make a regular practice in the life of our church family. This do in remembrance of me. We're talking about in this series leading up to Easter, we're calling the series non-essential. Last week, we talked about 
what is essential, God's presence, that we would be worshipers of His. This morning, I want to talk to you about what is essential. That's knowing that we can examine our lives, that we can admit and confess and receive forgiveness, that we can leave old habits and baggage behind. And we desperately, it's essential for us to take on God's forgiveness in our lives. You're not built to live with guilt or shame. I want us this morning to anchor ourselves in the balance of our time to this passage found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul addresses early followers of Jesus. And here's what he says. Take a look. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 22. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, if it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. Here, Paul gives hard words. You know, when you love somebody, there are times when you have to give hard words. Anybody in leadership, if you're leading a family, leading in the church, leading an organization, there are times when you need to give hard words, times when we need to receive those words. And Paul is saying, here's what you're doing wrong, and here's how big a deal it is. He's talking to some people who are speaking on behalf of God, but not representing them with their heart, with God's heartbeat. And he says to them, the church meetings that you're having are doing more harm than good. Wait, what? How can you say that? It's church. We're singing songs. We're praying prayers. We're giving offering. We're hearing a sermon. It's God's people gathered together. How can you say that this meeting, these meetings are doing more harm than good? Paul is saying, hey, you're not in for a high five here because here's what's happening. You're missing God's heart when it comes to mercy and when it comes to justice. We have a saying in America, I bet you've heard this, maybe said it at times, laughed about it. It's, it goes like this, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. In Corinth, they had a saying, you are where you eat. You see, it was about status, cultural, socioeconomic. And Paul is writing to them saying, your worship is in vain. All the good things, remember this is 1 Corinthians 11. Most of you know what he would go on to say famously in a couple of chapters about love. If you don't have love, then your life is a clanging cymbal. It's a noisy gong. It's all in vain. Even if you do these religious things, if you don't have love, and in essence, he's building a case toward that and giving them a needed, a needed rebuke. He's adding this correction for refinement, for humbling so they could reach their potential that God has created them in. In Matthew 25, Jesus also gives hard words. Paul is following in suit. Jesus said that there's a certain religious person, and listen, you and I are not exempt. It's not just in the heart of people in Corinth. It can be in our hearts as well. And Jesus talks about a group of religious people who they want the places of honor at the banquet. It's not, oh, you are what you eat. It's you are where you eat. And they wanted the places of honor at the banquet. They wanted the chief seats in the synagogue. They wanted to be greeted with respect 
in the marketplace. And Jesus is saying, that's not what it's about. The disciples at one point argued among themselves, imagine that, they argued among themselves, who will be the greatest? Who will sit on your left and who will sit on your right? It's, hey, you are where you eat. And they were looking for places of honor. Isn't there something in all of us that wants respect, something in all of us that wants to be noticed and valued and appreciated? So much of that is good, but so much of that can lead to pride. And here, spiritual pride has set in. And what it has done, it was humiliating the church. So hear me for a second. Their lives unexamined, their, their sin and their deeds, their missing of justice and mercy, their lack of love was humiliating the church. And it was a big deal. I was thinking by way of example this week about a story from last year that's spilled over into this year. Now, the COVID-19 and other things have pushed it off the headlines, but you'll remember as in the middle of 2019, there was a college admission scandal that grabbed the headlines. There were some wealthy families who were seeking to bribe, or in fact, they did bribe college officials, college coaches, admission counselors. They bribed them with millions of dollars to get their sons and daughters into schools of prominence. It was on such a large scale that the U.S. Department of Education actually launched a formal investigation. There were some who whispered, oh, it's just a handful of people with their own petty cash, millions of dollars in petty cash. It's not that big a deal. But what a judge said at the turn of this year, he said that it's a very big deal, that it was reeking of humiliation on the entire education system in America. In other words, if this is left unchecked, then it's going to cast a stain on the whole education system. Those words would sound to be a bit like they were exaggerated, but I think he's right. And in a way, that's what Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, saying that this is caused humiliation when you're exalting yourselves and when you are going first and eating until you're full and other people are hungry and they're left on the outside and there's people who are rich and reputable and thus there are people who are considered to be poor and not as respected. And he's saying this could mess the whole thing up. This is a big deal. There's a word I want you to look at the screen. It's a word that I read this week from a sociologist. Take a look at it. It's really a made up word, but if it counts as a word, it would be considered a hybrid. You see on the screen there, the word comparagance. Now guess, if you would, those two words. You can probably gather as you think about it, that there's the word compare and the word arrogant. And the idea there is and one, one sociologist I was reading this week said that very thing, that this, is, this is, is very destructive to the human psyche. It fractures us in our relationships, in our spirituality, in our ability to connect meaningfully with other people. We compare ourselves. We do so favorably, and it promotes arrogance. It is this new thing called comparagance. Well, new in the sense that a sociologist gave it a name. But as we see from the church at Corinth, it's been happening as long as humans have been around. James would say to the church there that they should not show favoritism and that God, listen to this from James chapter four, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So here's this invitation. Paul is saying to us, there's a lot of things that we think can matter, but if we're not loving well, 
if we're not humbling ourselves, if we're not inviting others to the table, if we're just standing and talking to people at the door and not inviting them to a place of honor next to us at the table, not sharing a meal, then we're missing it. Take a look at this. I thought about it this week in this way, making it relevant to our day. Our church can have the most eloquent vision statement, the most talented music team, the most solid small group curriculum, the most downloaded sermon podcast, but it can actually do more harm than good if we do nothing to address the people that we are becoming. I want you to, I want to keep that up on the screen and I want to give you a moment just to read it again. And I want to read it one more time after you do silently. One more time for deeper thought. Our church can have the most eloquent vision statement, the most talented music team, the most solid small group curriculum, the most downloaded sermon podcast, but actually do more harm than good if we do nothing to address the people that we're becoming. So there's an invitation. In fact, it's essential for us, if we're going to be genuine followers of Christ, that we would be people who give back in worship, as we talked about last week, but we would gather around the table, and as we do, we would do this in remembrance of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul would later utter this important phrase. Take a look at it from 1 Corinthians 11. He would say, everyone ought to examine themselves. Everyone ought to examine themselves. The idea there is that the Lord's Supper, communion, is not a between me and God thing. It is between you and God, but it's, it's God and you and me and us together and the type of community that we're forming. We don't determine who matters and who doesn't matter, who is, has worth and who doesn't have worth, who's in and who is out. God determines that. And God says that everyone's created in His image and everyone is invited. Everyone is welcome at the table. And that's the kind of people we need to be. It's essential for us, especially in these times, what an opportunity the church has to examine ourselves. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, one of them would go on to say that the unexamined life is not worth living. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 would say, we must examine ourselves. I think there's a couple of very important components when it comes to examining ourselves. The first is admitting, and the second is confessing. I love the old story about the college student and the professor. The professor had just administered an exam, and he approached the college student and told them, hey, you cheated on the person sitting next to you. The student gets defensive and said, I didn't. He said, well, you both, you both only missed one question. The student said, that's just a coincidence. The professor followed up with him and said, but you missed the same question. The student doubled down on his defensiveness and said, professor, that is a coincidence. And he said, well, the student you copied off of wrote on the one question he got wrong, he wrote, I don't know the answer. And you wrote down, I don't know the answer either. Think about it. The fact is that we don't like to admit. We don't want to be caught. We, we really don't want to examine ourselves. We, we wait to the last possible moment to come clean about something. To examine yourselves, for you and I as followers of Jesus, it's important for us to admit some of us naturally are more defensive than others. Some of us, by contrast, can admit things more readily. I wonder which one you are. Listen, I've got to grow personally in this area, but it's important to admit as we examine ourselves, 
Are you willing to admit where you're wrong? Are you admit, willing to admit where you need to grow? Second component I want to give you besides admitting or along with admitting is confessing. I remember being in a big city one time several years back and I saw a note outside of a church door and it said something along these lines. I'm quoting this almost verbatim. It said this, we only have one priest available for confession today. So get to the point, confess only your sin or offense. No need to explain why. I found humor in that and I thought, if it was only that easy. I want to say to you this morning that confession, it's not transactional. In fact, what communion, what coming to the table, what sharing a meal reminds us of, what taking the bread and the cup means and following Jesus is that confession is not transactional. It's relational, it's personal, and it gets really, really deep. Think of Peter. Peter was the one who sinned greatly so many times, like me like you, right? And Peter's sin was chronicled for us. Peter said, Jesus, I'm never going to deny you. Jesus said, you're going to deny me. Peter said, no, I'm never going to deny you. If all others deny you, I will not. In other words, Peter has some comparisons, doesn't he? He's saying, hey, they're going to fail you, but not me. I stand out. I'm better. I'm more loyal. I'm more devoted, more spiritual, Jesus. And we know that he denied. We know that he fell. And how did Jesus make it right? Was it a jiffy lube confession? Was it a quick transaction that he asked Peter to make? Do you know the answer? What did Jesus do? Anybody know? Jesus invited Peter to share a meal. In fact, he said, come have breakfast with me. Something can happen when we share meals together. Something can happen when we move admitting and confessing outside of a religious transactional arena and we make it personal, and we make it relational, we make it a process over time where we learn to sit with Jesus and we learn to examine ourselves and see where He wants us to grow. A friend of mine is a pastor of a church in Lexington, Kentucky. They built their church around three values, if you will. It's a, it's a saying, but so much deeper than that. And it goes like this. Look at the screen. It's so good. I figured some of you would want to make a notation of this. They say at this church in Lexington, Kentucky, everybody's welcome, nobody is perfect, and anything is possible. Great ideas. That, I think, could puncture the people of Corinth, where they got it wrong in the church, where they were missing love and justice and mercy, where they were filling themselves and seeing others go without. When they had classes of people and decided who was worthwhile, who mattered, who was in, and who was out. We need to be that type of church where we can say the very same thing, that everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, but anything is possible. A couple of years ago, we had someone come visit us who was telling us, in fact, they sat around this very table with my wife and I, and we got to hear their story, their story that we knew a little bit about, but they told us about leaving home. They told us about the rebellion in their heart, about discounting their belief in God, what they had learned from their family, of going to a land and living and getting caught up literally in prostitution, drugs and alcohol, clenched in the vice grip of addiction, debauchery. This person was describing to us, again, a little bit of the story that we heard, but around this table, we heard it so tenderly and so personally. And when they got home, on the way home rather, on a bus ride, they, this person was really worried worried about if they would be received, worried about 
the mother, the father, the family. And what this person described to us was coming home and entering into a bus terminal, thinking about a walk home and waiting to see if there would be a welcome mat. And what this person described to us was seeing not just a mother and a father and brothers and sisters, but extended family with a computer-generated welcome sign, with handmade posters, with balloons ready to party that this person had come home. You know, that story, as you know, mirrors the one that Jesus told so prominently, the prodigal son. We rejoice in stories like that, but we do if there's progress and growth, when we come to our senses, when we examine ourselves and see our sin, when we can admit and confess. But all that matters only if we're growing close to Jesus. Sometimes we cheapen grace. We say everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and it ends there. But I hope as we examine ourselves and come to the table today that we can grow as a people and we can also say that with God, anything is possible. Where do you need Him today? Maybe like a lot of people, it's anxiety and depression, economic, emotional uncertainty that's getting the best of you. Maybe it's that area of your life that you've been willing to or unwilling to admit and not desirous to confess. I want us to take a moment. Paul said not only must we examine ourselves when we take the Lord's Supper, he said that in doing this, we proclaim the Lord's death. Take a look at those, that phrase from 1 Corinthians 11 on the screen. We proclaim the Lord's death. Notice it doesn't say we proclaim our self-sufficiency. It doesn't say we proclaim our mastery. We proclaim our goodness, our righteousness, our pride. It says we proclaim the Lord's death. And so I want us, as we end, to play some music. You'll see a slide leading us. And in just a moment, as you gather the elements, again, this is optional. You can observe this or you can participate. We hope that you'll participate by grabbing simple elements, bread and a cup of wine or juice. And in just a moment after this prayer, we'll come back and we'll do this together in remembrance of Jesus.